Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Later in the show, we'll hear from Davy economist Colin McQuilla and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times about the health of the Irish economy. And I'll be joined in studio by Barry Halloran and Olivia Kelly of the Irish Times to discuss the controversy around Dunleary Ratdown's decision to place land at Leperstown Racecourse on its vacant site register. But we'll start, as usual, with a roundup of some of the main business stories of the week. And this week, I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Peter Hamilton. Peter, you're very welcome. Uh, I think we're going to start with some merger mania Absolutely. from uh, other markets. Yeah, very busy weekend. Uh, main ones were Asda and Sainsbury's, Sprint and T-Mobile in the US, and Marathon Petroleum and uh, Endeavour in the US. Asda and Sainsbury's, two of the biggest grocery groups in the UK. Exactly, and, and, and fighting now to to become the biggest sole grocery group ahead of Tesco. Um, they're, they're planning to create the largest grocery chain there. And, and Sainsbury's in the UK, uh, they're trying to paint this as a, a joining up of two partners, but it is for all intents and purposes a cash and stock deal, and it is a, an acquisition by Sainsbury's. Um, they're, Walmart, they're, of course, the big US uh, retail yeah, giant, uh, owns as uh, and it's going to have... It's going to have a percentage share in this merged entity, isn't it? It is, and the merged entity will ultimately be called Sainsbury's. Uh, however, so so you know, quite a big change. It's in a the strategic UK shift by Walmart, I guess. They don't have uh, shops in the Republic, but they are in Northern Ireland. They are in Northern Ireland, and typically, Asda and Sainsbury's, Asda would. Uh, would do better business in certain areas while Sainsbury and others. So Asda, for example, is more uh, more successful outside of city centres while uh, Sainsbury more successful in city centres. This is in the north, at least. So it's unclear what the new branding will do to the Asda business outside of Belfast, for example. As I say, one of three big mergers mm. and in the US then uh, on, on the um, telecommunications front, uh, T-Mobile, which is owned by the German company Deutsche, uh, Deutsche Telekom, uh, they were acquiring Sprint for $59 billion. Again, a, an all-stock acquisition there of Sprint. Investors were a bit more negative on this one, um, but they are competing against huge players and they would be two of the two of the smaller players in, in that pool. So they're suggesting that uh, this is required to compete uh, against the bigger players like AT&T, for example. Uh, and then finally, the other, the third big one over the weekend was Marathon Petroleum and they took over their rival refining group Andiver and that was for 36 billion 
and uh, there they're giving shareholders the option to receive either stock or cash. Now, this is the biggest deal in the energy sector since General took uh, or agreed to purchase Baker Hughes in 2016. What's important about these three and what's worth noting about these three is that they bring the level of deal-making so far this year to a record $1.7 but it's higher than the the, the pre-financial crisis high. Perhaps this this is evidence of of more risk appetite from these companies. I suppose it tells us that consolidation is is at the heart of a lot of these uh, sectors. Yeah, indeed it does. But uh, it's it's unclear how positive this is for investors either way. All right, now... We are going to talk about a very important topic now and I'm going to urge listeners not to turn off this podcast because we'd like you to stay until the end. We are going to discuss the European Union's multi-annual financial framework or in the language of, uh, of the layman, the EU budget. So it's not as, as tedious as it sounds. It's, it's uh, effectively not quite the budget but effectively the overarching uh, guidelines for the budget uh, on expenditure and things like that why it's important for us uh, in an Oireachtas committee or, um, on budgetary oversight, oversight they issued a report this morning and they urged the EU not to increase uh, the contributions Ireland will have to make uh, indeed the EU did they they increased them by about 10% in line with every other country the way this works is that Ireland pays as a percentage of its GNI its gross national income now it's about 1%. Uh, we're, we're paying about We're paying 1%. 1%. Paying it's now 1%. up to 1.11%. Um, and this is because of Brexit? Because the Brits are leaving? Exactly. There's going and to be a going 94 to be a big hole in the billion euro hole in the budget. So the concern is that the cap, the common uh, agricultural policy, which is of great importance to our farmers, the concern is that that's going to get a hit because that's the, one of the biggest expenditure items in the EU. Uh, the Oireachtas the Committee this morning and indeed the IFA urging the EU not to to tamper with the cap. Now, they're saying that in light of Britain leaving, um, there could be time to reform cap because at the moment, some larger landowners benefit a bit more from cap than than the smaller ones. So they're saying the smaller ones won't necessarily be affected. Yeah. By it's important for Ireland because uh, for the first time, we're a net contributor Indeed. to the EU budget. So we're, we're, we're paying more than we're getting back. And we've done very well over the years. I think Brian Hayes, I saw him quoting a figure of 50 billion yeah. that we've received since we've... Uh, entered what was the old EEC, I guess, back in 1973. That's right. And he was at odds to some extent with the Oireachtas Committee this morning in that he he was saying, we've done very well from the EU. It's time for us to start paying back a bit while they were saying... Mm. Pay the MEPs a bit more. Uh, <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that was the underlying issue. That could have been uh, the message. There. All right, let's talk about costs of living in Ireland. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, maybe conflicting signals, uh, if you like, on, on this issue uh, the CSO put some figures out uh, this week for 2016 and it showed that Ireland got less expensive compared to other EU countries. Now, that might come as a shock to a lot of people living here who are having to pay increased rents and uh, they're paying more for all sorts of consumer goods and items, and particularly if you're living in the capital as well. I suppose the thing to note here is that other countries probably accelerated at a quicker and a greater rate than we did. It's not necessarily to say that people have more money in their pockets, uh, but we were the fourth most expensive location in the EU behind Denmark, Sweden and Luxembourg. So I, I suppose it's relatively positive in that mm. we don't live in those locations. What what was very positive from that report was that we are the most productive nation in the EU and that's obviously related mm. to Irish GDP growth. Well, you are so, very so productive, Peter. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so but there is a pinch of salt that. with that. But, however, do you feel like you were living in a less expensive country in 2016? Uh, turn your mind back to almost two years ago. Well, I can't say I do necessarily, uh, but, you know, I suppose... Look, if the EU says I am, then perhaps I am. Well, less good news perhaps for you, uh, Peter, is the fact that a report from Prosperous Financial 
has determined that it could take uh, a worker on the average industrial wage living in Dublin some 21 years to save enough money to buy a house in the capital. Let's put together the deposit under central bank rules to be able to buy a house in the capital. So, so that's just an average house. It's they are they're quite shocking. An average figures. worker in an average house. An average worker in an average house. They're quite shocking figures. I suppose the thing to note here is that they're suggesting an average wage. The average wage is three thirty six thousand nine hundred nineteen. They're suggesting that the savings that a person on that wage will have per month is €127. Now, obviously, that'll vary from person to person. But with that €127 savings, it'll take 21 years, they say. In Dublin, of course, the situation is better uh, in my my homeland, Galway, and in Cork, uh, where dwellers fare a lot better and can... How many years in Galway? I think it's three years, uh, three years in in to get on the property ladder in Galway because the rent prices are far far lower and, and because Cork? house prices, uh, Cork and Galway are both three years. Are both three years, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are you waiting for, Peter? So <laughs> twenty-one years in Dublin versus three years in Galway. Again, or Cork? again, that's twenty-one on one hundred twenty-seven euro per per month being saved. So if you're saving more than that, you know you might do it in nineteen. Right. Now, tell me, Peter, have you worked out? Have you made a calculation as to how long it might take? take you to save for a deposit for a house in Dublin? I'm not too concerned at the moment, but uh, I'll start looking at it in the not-too-distant future, I have no doubt. All right, on that note, we'll leave there. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We'll move now to a row in South County Dublin between Horse Racing Ireland and Dunleary Ratdown Council over two parcels of land at Leperstown Racetrack. They've been placed on the local authority's vacant site register with a value of €79 million. Some councillors in the area are pressing for parts of the land to be freed up to build some 1,000 social housing units. And joining me in the studio to discuss this are Barry O'Halloran and Olivia Kelly of the Irish Times. Now, Barry Halloran, we might start with you. You might just take us through this extraordinary story around uh, Leprosan Racecourse. They've got a couple of parcels of land worth a lot of money, which Dunleary Ratdown County Council feels should be on this vacant site register. And a number of councillors uh, on that council, on that local authority, would like to see social housing built on it. Okay, well, Leopardstown, or rather H- Horse Racing Ireland, which is the, the, the state body that owns Leopardstown Racecourse, um, has two plots of land at the end of the racecourse, the Carrick Mines end, Carrick, Carrick Mines, Ballyogan. Uh, they total 57 acres. They're worth a total of 79 million exactly, according to Dunleary Ratdown County Council. Where did they get that valuation from? Uh, you'll have to ask Dunleary Ratdown County Council. My, my understanding of the way that works is that those valuations are supposed to be independent because they form the basis uh, for which you pay the penalty for being on the the vacant sites register in the first place. But like I say, that would probably need to be double-checked with um, Dunleary Ratdown. But my understanding is it's it's an independent valuation. The the land is currently used as a car park, but HRI says we have plans or we want to apply for planning to build houses, possibly a hotel, and they are also in talks with the Department of Education, which wants to build a school in the area. So the land is idle now. HRI says we are working on a master plan for it. Um, and in the meantime, they're appealing Dunleary Ratdown's decision to place it on the vacant sites register, which means they would have to pay 3% a year uh, for as long as the land is lying idle or, or while there is no planning permission or no work being done. Explain to us how a piece of land, a parcel of land in any local authority area ends up on a, a vacant site register. Okay, well, it has to fulfil a number of criteria under the, the, the Housing and Urban Regeneration Act 2015. Fundamentally, it has to be idle, okay, um, not, not being used for anything. It has to be suitable for housing and it has to be in an area where there is a demand for housing. Now, the HRI land is not being used for anything at the moment, much except as a car park. 
it is in an area where there is demand for housing. Uh, a very high demand. In fact, Heinz and a range of other developers are building away Goodo down there at the moment. Um, and it also is in an area where there's, the, the, you know, the, the amenities are close by, there are roads. I'm assuming that because it's already in a suburb that the, the sort of infrastructure that you need is easily accessed from the site if it's not present on the site at the moment. So it, it, on that basis, it, the council believes that it fulfills all the criteria for a vacant site. Right, Olivia, you have a story in the Irish Times uh, this morning where a number of councillors are calling for this uh, vacant land to be used for social housing. And obviously there's huge pressure uh, on providing social and affordable housing uh, in Ireland, but particularly in Dublin. Well, yeah, I'd have to say first that I think the Horse Racing Ireland's plans uh, as they are now won't keep them off the vacant site register and that they won't be successful with this appeal to uh, Bor Planola. Based on what? Because, well, uh, they... Their, their plans, well, what they've said is that they're considering plans to do this, that and the other. And so far, even when um, when uh, either landowners, private or public landowners, have even had planning permission, that hasn't been enough to keep them off the vacant site register. You have to show that you're actually going ahead and you're building. So far, there have been, I think, around 30 appeals to Bor Planola and... Um, 21 of them have been unsuccessful. In the ones that have been successful, and some people have some of the largest sites, most expensive sites in the country, have got themselves off the the vacant site register. And how they've done that is by actually getting shovels into the ground, by actually starting work. So just saying, oh yeah, we think we might do this, or we're thinking of a deal with the Department Mm. of Education, we're thinking of some housing, and maybe a hotel, no way will that get them off the vacant site register. So they'll at least have that levy um, next year. And, you know, it takes a while to go through the planning process. We're talking process. about a lot of money here, aren't we? We're we, talking about, what, two, well, two point odd million? Well, if you look at it, we're actually, for this 2. year... 2.4 million? They, for this year, it's 3%, and that works out as just under the 2.4 million. But from next year on, that's going up to 7%. And if you combine the two years, 10%. And they're unlikely to get all their planning in before before then, it's just not how the planning uh, process works. So they're looking at a ten percent levy by the end of twenty nineteen, payable in twenty twenty. Olivia, was this uh, tax, if you like, this levy um, on on land hoarding? Was this not a, a levy really that was aimed at property developers who were sitting on land deliberately waiting for uh, prices or values to go up, biding their time before they put in for uh, planning permission, rather than let's say you know a, a race, surplus land on a race course or yeah some other sort of state agency? Initially, initially it was envisaged that way and um, that that a state agency, a local authority say as well, that they'd be exempt. But then, of course, um, private landowners, but as well county councillors, they kicked up and they said, well, this isn't right. There's a lot of state agencies, the HSE, uh, CIE, and local authorities themselves that are sitting on land that they could develop for housing. Um, and aren't using it. So there, everyone is liable now. If you're a landowner, public or private, you're you're liable for this. Mm. And and say in in Dublin, the HSE have appealed their some of their sites, and they got knocked back by the board. The board said, "No, you're you're staying and you're paying the levy for 2018 at least until you get your act together mm. and and you develop land." Uh, most notably with the HSE, they had some land there. Um, beside the new DIT in Grange Gorman 
uh, it was actually it's derelict derelict houses on a site and the, they were particularly miffed initially with the council because the way the process works is the council initially decides whether you're likely to be liable. You can then appeal to the council. If you're not successful, you then appeal to Ambor Planola. The HSE were very miffed with the council for putting them on in the first place and they appealed to Bor Planola and Bor Planola upheld the council. Similarly, with the Law Society, they were shocking cross in relation to a site on Ben Burb Street uh, and they, they even wrote letters to the council dismayed at how, you know, not just an appeal, but dismayed at how they thought they had the, the faith of the council and the trust of the council and, you mm. know, and, uh, but again, they appealed up to Bor Panola and were unsuccessful. Okay, well, no better people to put that into a legal process and have it spinning around for a long, <laughs> long time, I suspect. Olivia, what happens to the money? Let's say that uh, Dunleary Ratdown collects this 2.4 million uh, next year from uh, HRI. What happens to the money? What do they do with it? It's supposed to be used for, for housing generation. It's the whole point of it. But what we're being told is that collecting the money isn't the point of this levy, that the levy is an incentive to get the people who own the land to actually start using it. Either if they don't have the, the wherewithal, sell it on so it can be used for housing or develop it for housing. And um, yeah, I can, I, I can see that that is already having success you know there are people who had been sitting on sites uh, receivers to to say large sites that uh, you know got their act together and did put in planning permissions this year Barry there has been a suggestion that HRI might reinstate the sprint track at uh, Leopardstown that was taken away when there was a motorway development and they lost a, a chunk of land so they lost their sprint track supposedly but um, they, they might actually to get around this that they might reinstate the sprint track they might reinstate the sprint track but that where they would put it is is it's precise. It's it's a little bit of a mystery to me, but it would probably have to start somewhere on the vacant site, on the the Carrick Mines uh, element of the vacant site, and mm. and caught up into the track in the the opposite direction to which the horses would that get them would. around this uh, issue. It, it, uh, I, I suspect not. It may get them around the issue for the, the whatever element of the land they're using for the sprint track. And pres- presumably some area around it, you know, because you're going to need area around mm. the track for the, the, the horses to be brought down there in the first place and this kind of thing. If the council is going to apply the, the law as strictly as it appears to be doing, it doesn't sound to me like putting an element of the sprint track there would solve the problem. Because don't forget, the finish line has to be in front of the stands, which is, you know, a good sort of half a mile sort of thing. Back, back away from, okay. from where we're talking about. as well aren't looking for all of the land. If you think, I think they're looking for about... Um, six and a half hectares, which would be what portion, Barry, of, of the overall? About a third would be? Uh, uh, six and a half hectares yeah, of the land to be of, used for social housing. To be used, well, to be used for social and affordable housing. Uh, I, I, that's, that is in the order of 11% of the land. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a massive so it, chunk. It wouldn't, you know, so they're not looking for the whole land plot. As well, I think they're, it's not, it'll be mainly social affordable housing. I think they are actually all open to a, a small percentage, say around the 20% mark of private housing as well. So we're not talking about a mass social housing estate. Okay. Now I've just been doing some quick 
uh, arithmetic and six and a half hectares is 16 acres. And if I'm right, uh, Olivia, the councillors seem to be suggesting to you that a thousand social housing units could be built, uh, presumably on these uh, 16 acres. Which yeah, would be which I presume you're talking about apartments si- then. 62 and a half units per acre, yeah. which seems a lot to me. Now, there used to be a rule of thumb back in the good old days before the internet and all of that. There used to be a rule of thumb uh, when we lived in black and white that uh, you, had, you could get 10 houses on an acre. Now, OK, that's gone. That was with front back gardens and all of that. Mm. But we moved away from that. 62.5 uh, units per acre. That seems like an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I thought myself... I think that has seem, the makings of a ghetto. Uh, it, it seems ambitious. But yeah, I think we are. I think we are talking about largely apartment development out that way anyway. Um, it's pretty windy out there. It is. Well, well the Heinz stuff that you were talking about there, that's largely apartments that's, that's underway it's, it, so it, far, it's mostly, it? It, mostly what Heinz is doing is apartments. Yeah. But you've got to remember that that's a very, very extensive site. And what Heinz is doing is they're focusing that the actual building that they're doing is now they're servicing the entire site. But the actual building that they're doing is in what will be the, the town centre of that site. Mm. And, you know, that lends itself particularly to apartments. And I think they're doing mostly apartments in, okay. in there. Barry, if Leopard Centre, HRI, uh, effectively lose control of this site, let's say these 16 uh, acres are, are siphoned off for housing, does it affect the operation of the race course? No, I don't see how it could. And you've got to remember that the the the, the race course is is effect is, has been functioning away quite separate from this this surplus land. They may need a part of it to to reinstate their sprint track, something I do, which they've been talking about for do, doing for years. This isn't a new thing in in effect. Um, but I don't see it affecting the, the 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 running of the racetrack. But I do. It is a state body, and they they do have an asset, and they do have a requirement for money. Um, they should certainly be allowed to develop some of that and and to be uh, to to channel it back into what they're doing. I don't think anybody, though, at the same time would have a problem with the state saying we need some of this land for social housing because there is a chronic need for social housing in this country. Whatever proportion of that uh, it ends up being, I don't know. But I, I don't see what the, the I don't see what why there would be a fundamental issue with, with with having social housing there, and I don't see it affecting the running of the racetrack in any but in, in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, Olivia, how successful has this fake inside register been in persuading uh, developers, builders, landowners to get moving on building houses? It seems like it's it's very early days, and you have to remember it's a, it's only come into force since the first of January, and nobody's had to pay any money yet. And I think when people actually have to start paying out the, that couple of million, that's when it starts to hurt, and that'll not happen till um, next year. But yeah, one particular site, say the um, a former Liam Carroll site, former Danager site down in in the Docklands, that was Dublin City Council's. Uh, most valuable vacant site on their register and that recently has come off the register it was a 22.5 million site because the development is, is starting down there so it'll be a slow process but it is it is working the Dublin City Council has gone from 86 sites down to 75 already so it is moving after years of when nothing was moving at all so it, it's, it's, it's having some Something's effect. beginning to stir mm. yeah okay Barry when do we get a decision from on board Planola in relation to Leprosan and the HRI case? My understanding is that I, that, that decision is due in, in around June. No, I haven't seen the, the, the appeal file. I have to say it wasn't, it, it wasn't available, at least on the internet, uh, in, in the last few days. But my understanding is the decision comes pretty quickly. OK, uh, we'll leave it there. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll have some bullish economic forecasts from Davies Stockbrokers. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. 
Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can download this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, earlier this week, Davy Stockbrokers published its latest set of forecasts for the Irish economy. In a bullish note, the stockbroker predicted that the Irish economy would grow by 5.7% this year, helped along by strong consumer spending, increased employment levels and raised activity in the mortgage market. Uh, Davy economist Colin McQuilla, who authored the report, joins me in the studio. And we're also joined by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Colin, you're very welcome. Uh, you, In the note, you actually, you've increased your Irish GDP forecast for this year from 3.8% growth to 5.7%, which is obviously quite a jump. Just take us through the reasons why you think it's going to increase by that much. Uh, well, it is, but I suppose we've been caught out before. If you look at last year's figure of 7.8%, that was well above the kind of 5% level we were expecting. And unfortunately, there's a bit of uh, leprechaun economics in the numbers, seeing double-digit growth in services exports, and it's that sort of strength in exports, some of it artificial, some of it real, um, which is pushing up the GDP numbers. So it's that export sector, uh, which continues to do very well, um, which is leading us to rise up. The other one is employment. So for a long time now, we've been expecting employment to grow to kind of slow to around 2.5%, 2%. But actually, the CSO revised up the pace of employment growth over the past four or five years to above 3%. Now, that's after a very sharp 17% drop in employment peak to trough in 2012. But we're seeing employment grow by around 3% per annum uh, since then. And that's adding more support, I suppose, to the economy. So, um, you know, it's strong growth, but it's coming after a very difficult experience. And if you take employment... The level of employment is still half percent below where it was 10 years ago. So these are strong growth rates, but it's obviously after a very painful um, experience. So I hate to be called bullish. I'd like to think that the recovery that we've seen after a very bad recession is continuing. Um, of course, we're assuming Brexit uh, doesn't upset the apple cart. Some of the dangers around reform of corporate tax look as if they're not going to come to fruition. Uh, so it's more catch up, uh, but that doesn't mean we should be complacent. You know, you look at the government deficit at the moment. We're not planning to run a surplus until 2020. Well, I think when the unemployment rate is coming down as fast as it is, now is really the time we should start running it. Yeah, I was going to ask you what 5%, 5.7% GDP growth means for Pascal Donoghue in terms of his budget calculations. How much headroom does it give him, let's say, for spending increases or tax cuts? Uh, well, this time last year, uh, they put the fiscal space at $3.2 billion. Uh, and I suppose if you looked at the sort of two to one ratio, which everyone has been speaking about, mm. uh, that would leave you around a billion for tax cuts. Now, since then, there's been a few developments. Um, I suppose the National Development Plan, uh, there's the implementation of the pay deal. Uh, so if you look at, say, the Stability Programme update that was just published a couple of weeks ago, uh, there's 2.6 billion of pre-committed spending um, already in there. So that's going to certainly reduce the room uh, in the budget. I suppose the other point is that we may be uh, legally allowed under the fiscal rules to give away $3 billion. Uh, but that's not to say that we should. And again, that comes back to this issue around the economy is doing well. Surely now is the time to um, uh, you know, fix the roof as the sun is shining, if you like, and move into surplus, get the debt-GDP ratio down. The other point is that, of course, we're very uncertain about these corporate tax revenues, which have doubled over the past couple of years to $8 billion. Um, of Some of the reforms around corporate tax reform, 
uh, those dangers appear to have gone away, at least for now. Uh, but again, that's a very volatile sector in terms of um, its contribution to tax revenues. And if that $8 billion was suddenly suddenly to fall back, uh, that could leave us in a bit of trouble. So I think after all this time, of course, we're optimistic and we think the recovery can continue. But for prudence's sake, now is the time we should probably be thinking about running surpluses. Cliff, we could have an election in 2019. In fact, Connell uh, sort of references that point mm. in his note and suggests that there's some political pressure could be brought to bear for a, a giveaway budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the recent exchanges between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael getting increasingly testy, mm. uh, you know, there's certainly new stresses appearing in that relationship. Uh, I, I suppose if you were looking for for the time for a general election, ne- next year is the most likely and you wouldn't write out you know, the possibility of, of, of a political accident this year uh, and an election sometime later this year, either before or, or, or immediately after the budget. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the history of Irish politics is littered with pre-election giveaway budgets mm. uh, and most of them have led to uh, you know car crashes down the road uh, most of them have, have, have proved to be mistaken in, in, in one way or the other either in their particular measures uh, for example the abolition of domestic rates in the late 1970s and the unbal- this, which was the start of the unbalancing of the Irish tax base or, they, or, or some of the budgets in the 2000s which as we know now know inflated the economy so yeah I think Pascal Donoghue is going to be under pressure there's been a kind of an interesting tenor in the discussion between the public discussion between him and Fianna Fáil at kind of the head of party level or the senior party figures level in recent, the last couple of months where both sides are saying, oh, you know, we agree, we need to be cautious, we agree, we don't need to spend all the money. But you'd still think in the run up to the budget, the groundswell coming up from uh, the local TDs, there's, there's going to be pressure to spend here, there and everywhere. And as Connell has said, there's already 2.6 billion extra spending in there for next year before we even get to budget day. So, uh, and they I, always find a bit of money down the back of the couch, don't they? They do, they always find a bit day. of money, they do. I, I think, I've, I don't know how many budgets I've been covering, but pretty much every year an extra an extra few bob is found, maybe with a few a few possible exceptions during the during, during the very uh, the very bottom of the crisis. So yeah, some extra money is found. But I think, I, I think Connell is right on this one that uh, we should be thinking about heading into a surplus next year. We probably should have been thinking of heading into a surplus this year. Uh, I, I know that we have a current budget surplus at the moment, quite a big one. In other words, day-to-day uh, revenues are, are in excess of spending, but we're still borrowing yeah. f- for investment. Uh, and you know, there's, there's one thing we know. We don't know when the economic cycle is going to turn down, but we know from history that at some stage it will. Things will get a bit tighter, and it would be nice to have some leeway then to spend a bit more or cut taxes a bit. Uh, should, should, we, should we be concerned about the slowdown, the halting of the, the growth in the Eurozone, for example? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, and one of the contradictions is that you see Connell and, 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 and some of his colleagues and a lot of the institutions increasing the forecast for Ireland. But yeah, EU growth and UK growth are both, are both falling back a bit. Now, the EU thing could be temporary. Uh, there may be an upside there for us in that interest rates may stay lower for longer. But of course, yeah, we need Ireland. Currency might weaken. That's not necessarily a bad thing for us. Not necessarily a bad thing. Absolutely. And Ireland has done quite well in the past when the UK and US have been growing and Europe and Europe has been weak in recent years because it's kept interest rates low. So, you know, once Europe keeps growing and, and doesn't doesn't lurch back too, too, too much, uh, hopefully we'll be all right. I'd be more worried about Brexit if you're looking at risks, I think, uh, mm. than the slowdown in Europe. Conor, are you worried about this slowdown in uh, European growth? Um, well, I suppose there's a period during which Europe was doing very well, particularly Germany, 
um, but also places like Spain growing around sort of three percent. So European growth was you know over two percent, and that's certainly above its kind of trend rate uh, given sort of population growth. So maybe markets are a little bit guilty of extrapolating out that growth sort of indefinitely, and it's always going to kind of come to an end. So I think you're probably looking at something closer to two percent growth uh, this year, which isn't a disaster by any means. But um, I suppose you've seen just over the past couple of days with the Fed raising rates. Uh, people are a little more concerned around the euro that the dollar has strengthened. In terms of though Ireland, I think you know clearly Brexit's a risk. Um, there's things that can happen to say the ICT sector and the pharma sector, which be. But you know there are very positive things out there. When there's this debate, I suppose, between the central bank, the IMF, the Department of Finance, is the economy overheating? And I suppose people are very familiar with house price inflation in WD territory. Um, they see rising rents, rents, rising rents. But there's other indicators which certainly aren't flashing red. CPI inflation is close to zero. Wage growth is 2%. That's not a level that should be alarming people. But expectations um, are rising, aren't they? I mean, the public uh, sector workers now, they want to get back to where they were 10 years ago. And the unions are, are, are very clear about that. And uh, that's happening in the private sector as well, that a lot of uh, unions are now saying, well, hold on. We've had 10 years of no wage growth or maybe pay cuts and, and austerity and all of that. Uh, now we want, you know, 2 to 3% uh, growth per year over the next number Well, that's years. certainly true and it hasn't happened yet in terms of really, really strong pay growth. We're not kind of competing ourselves out of uh, global markets in terms of being not competitive. Um, but again, in terms of public sector pay, that's obviously a very fraught issue. Um, you know, our own analysis suggests that, uh, you know, public sector pay is not low by European standards or vis-a-vis the private sector here in Ireland, but yet you see these claims in terms of restoration. Now, we all seem to agree that 2007, 2008 wasn't sustainable. And yet, on many metrics, we seem to believe we should go right back there. Public sector pay was part of the unsustainable boom. Um, and, you know, most metrics, it looks high. So, But then again, isn't it difficult know, for teachers and guards and nurses and so forth to buy a property in Dublin or to rent it in, in Dublin? It is absolutely difficult, just as it's difficult for people in the private sector. But we're certainly not going to cure the lack of housing, uh, particularly in the capital, by paying people more to drive up prices. What's going to cure the situation in terms of uh, housing supply are the difficult difficult structural things, which are difficult politically. It's planning reform. It's allowing greater building heights. It's better land use. Um, those are things that will cure um, housing supply. If we pay people more and try to... Um, we'll just be chasing our tail in terms of chasing if we allow prices up. Higher, uh, if we allow big tower blocks, let's say, to be built, uh, high-rise uh, apartment blocks to be built in Dublin, there's... Um, there's a suggestion that this will cure our, our problem, our uh, housing problem. But will it not also drive up the price of land? I mean, if you can get, let's say, 100 units onto a piece of land where previously you were only allowed 40 or 50, will that not simply drive up the price of land that developers are having to pay uh, or in, uh, simply increase? Uh, maybe they've already owned the land, so it's simply going to increase the value to them. It will, but ultimately, if you allow people to build at higher density, that's a good thing. Um, but it, may, it does make that land more valuable if you already own but it. But does it make housing any cheaper? Uh, well, uh, there is a debate about whether going over six, seven stories is efficient from a cost point of view. That actually may cost more to go over six, seven stories. But if you look at other cities like Manhattan, New York, uh, other cities in Europe, people do build over six stories. And the reason for that is that, first of all, people are prepared to pay more if you go uh, for higher levels. Uh, and also, they're building in the centre of the city where it makes sense. There's the economics are there. So I really think we need to move away from this sort of um, central, top-down, overall limit on building height in the overall city. Of course, there's areas we don't want to build high. But if a builder wants to build over six storeys in, in a particular part of the city, presumably he's doing that because he thinks there's an economic case to do that. Uh, and he should be allowed to do so. 
Cliff, let's talk about headwinds, uh, tariffs, uh, this potential for a, a trade war between the US and, and China, maybe sucking uh, the EU into it as well. We've got Brexit, which yourself and Cunnell have already mentioned. Uh, we've got this EU uh, slowdown and there are other sort of geopolitical factors uh, around there as well, Russia and, and so forth, that we have no control over. How how yeah. how difficult might that be for us going forward? Yeah, it's a kind of an interesting uh, contradiction in that uh, the Irish economy is certainly better than anyone could have expected now, and, and, and seems to be getting better. Unemployment falling back, uh, you know, to to pre to pre bust levels, and at the same time, internationally we've these uncertainties. Now, there's, I mean, there's always uncertainties internationally, and always things uh, that, that that you would be concerned about. But I think that the scale of them right now and and is, is is greater than it would be uh, than it would normally be i suppose brexit is top of the pile there uh, we see further evidence today of the real problems the conservative government is is having coming up with any kind of logical approach and uh, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has warned that you know a no deal is 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 a possibility and the government is ramping up its language on that so you know, if Britain were to crash out early next year without a deal, that would certainly be a short-term problem for certain sectors of the Irish economy, for exporters. Uh, it could hit confidence going into next year. Uh, and, and the other factor, I guess, is the one that Connell alluded to as well, is that it's the future of ICT and pharma investment here, uh, changing tax practices mm. internationally. And this oh. whole uh, threat of, I suppose, increased trade tensions between America and Europe and what they're going to mean for investment and trade in the you know in the long term. What's your read on the discussions that took place last weekend in Sofia between the EU finance ministers about the digital tax? Seems to be a, a cooling of support towards it. Yeah, I think that's good news for Ireland. I think uh, we've had two breaks, I suppose, in the international tax front over the last uh, the last six months. The first was that uh, the Trump administration abandoned what would have been the worst part of their proposed tax reform, which would really have hit companies selling from Ireland into the US and, for example, would have been a big negative for the pharma sector. And then we seem to have seen this digital tax plan, uh, you know, off. It, it, it doesn't seem to have got support. I think a lot of people are nervous that it's going to, uh, particularly the Germans are nervous that it would increase tensions with the US at a time when these things are really difficult. So that's good. Uh, it does remove, I suppose, an immediate threat. But I think at the same time, there is a clear direction of travel there. And that direction is towards more tax of these com- on these companies, a change in their tax arrangements and a kind of an undermining of the ability of any one country, particularly a smaller country like Ireland, to offer particular advantages in the tax field to these companies. So I think the game is changing, even if uh, some of the worst risks have been hope- gladly taken off the table from our point of view. Connell, in his column uh, this week, Chris Johns, Irish Times columnist, was suggesting he was trying to make some sense of uh, the EU and UK slowdown and so forth, other uh, economic indicators. And in the heel of the hunt, he seemed to be suggesting that uh, the only thing he can be certain about is that there's another recession coming. It's just a matter of when. Should we be worried about that? When do you think the next recession is coming? Um, well, I'm not going to call it right now. Um, look, I think if you take a look at the United States, uh, Europe, the UK, US, we've had this very difficult uh, financial meltdown in the late 2000s and a very slow recovery since then. So if you take the United States, uh, the recovery has been you know, strong since 2012, 13, but overall the level of employment has been weak in terms of recovery. So I suppose people who work in uh, financial markets have seen things like quantitative easing, very low interest rates, and that's pumped up asset prices very sharply indeed. So valuations look stretched. And with the Fed raising rates now, you could certainly see a correction, a further correction in asset prices. We saw a bit of that earlier this year. So people sometimes confuse, I think, 
valuations in equity markets and financial markets with the overall prospects for the economy. Now, it's been a long recovery, um, and that should tell you that, you know, we'll go on for some time. Uh, and as we go forward, we'll begin to see more signs of overheating in the global economy, inflation, wage growth, um, you know, consumer credit and bank lending picking up. But, you know, we're really not seeing those things yet across the global economy very sharply, maybe more in the United States, a bit more in the UK. Uh, but when you look at Ireland, that's a country where you say, well, frankly, there aren't those signs of overheating. Bank lending in Ireland is still contracting. If you look at SMEs, they're still extremely cautious. They're not going out there taking out a big bank loan to expand their business. Uh, the recovery in home building is clearly in, in its infancy and picking up. So when people think about when is the next recession, they need to understand we've come through a very, very difficult decade. And there still appears to be, say, spare capacity in labour markets. A lot of people in the United States and the UK who would be working part-time but would like to work full-time. So people need to kind of remember what an overheating economy looks like. Wage growth of 5%, inflation of 6%, trade deficits, the construction sector getting out of hand, bank lending, companies and households taking on too much debt. None of those things are present in the Irish economy. Um, that's less true in perhaps the UK, the US. But I think it's natural that after a good run of results in terms of recovery, people get nervous. Uh, but they may be forgetting what an overheating economy looks like and just how painful uh, this recession has been. So again, 10 years ago, the level of employment in Ireland was pretty much as it is now. It's been a very painful lost decade, if you like. Um, but it's only we're only just getting to the point um, where perhaps you need to start worrying about overheating. And there's certainly a big debate about that between the IMF, the Commission, others in terms of, well, not just the US, but ourselves. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Colin McQuilla, Cliff Taylor, Barry Halloran and Olivia Kelly. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 